it's not up to us necessarily to fix it. It is up to us to hold people accountable and make sure they fix it too, right? And that means we have to be involved. So we can do it. Hoorah. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association, Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On today's episode, we have a very special guest and we're in a very special studio provided by our dearest friend and one of our heroes in the podcasting world, Andy Moore of the Let's Fix This and Let's Pod This. So let's give some background on Andy and his podcast and his organization. So he founded Let's Fix This in 2016 as a grassroots effort to get regular everyday people involved in politics. He's also a licensed professional counselor who believes that taking the time to listen and build relationships with elected officials and between neighbors will pave the way to a better Oklahoma. He lives right here in Oklahoma City with his wife and his two fantastic kiddos and a smattering of pets. So with all that being said, Andy, welcome to the Mental Health Download. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks for having me. Most definitely. Okay. So I am a huge fan of the podcast, as are many people within Mental Health Association Oklahoma. It's a big deal for you to be on the show today. I think I emailed you and I was like, hey, you want to come on the show? And he's like, yeah, and I'm actually an LPC. I was like, oh my gosh, this works out. This makes it look like I knew what I was doing. <laughs> um, so I want to really talk about your mental health background and why you got into this field. So what inspired you to to become a mental health professional? Yeah. So uh, when I was in college, I went to Southern Nazarene up here in Bethany. And when I came to college, uh, wow, 20 years ago, I came with the intent of going into the ministry. Actually, I thought I was going to be a pastor. And very quickly in the first few months, I realized that was not the right path for me. And it just didn't, nothing, nothing about it clicked. Right. And so then I was like, well, I don't know what I want to do with my life. And I always wanted to teach, so I went into education and did. I was an education major for a few months, and it was fine. I enjoyed that, but it was also just not quite right. I didn't want to. I love teachers, and that's a huge profession and super important. It just wasn't quite the right fit. Um, I didn't feel like I could give my whole thing to it. And I had taken a psychology course my freshman year, and I that was fascinating. And the the professor in in particular was just like gripping like something about her she had this like interest in humanity and in life and like a, a curiosity and an appreciation for the human condition that I'd never experienced before and I thought there's something to that and so I went and talked to her and said I think I want to be a psych major you know would you have me would you be my advisor and she was like we'd love come on in and that was it and so then I you know jumped in both feet in every class was fascinating and I felt like I was good at it going into counseling. I, I think I didn't why well, I didn't know in the beginning, the very uh, diverse fields within psychology that you could do. They didn't do a great job of explaining that. So counseling was the only one that I was really aware of until like graduation. <laughs> and so I went into that and I had some undergrad courses in counseling and as it went along, I kind of befriended some of the faculty and, and SNU has a, a graduate program for counseling as well. And, uh, and so it made sense at that time just to roll right into that and, uh, and get my, my master's in marriage and family therapy and, uh, and then kind of set out on my own and did, uh, I've worked in a variety of fields. Well, I'm sure we can get into that, but yeah, um, that was kind of how it all happened. Wow. Okay. So yeah, let's talk about the various fields that you have been in. Sure. So I did private practice, um, the most, right? So I started that kind of right. That was my goal. I think as most counseling students, you're going to, I want to hang up a shingle and 
no one explained to me like how long the training process is that you have to get a master's degree and then you have to do 3000 hours of supervised experience. And then, you know, probably another two years before any insurance will pay for your services. And so you really have to get out there and kind of grind away. So along that way, I worked in community mental health. Um, I worked here at in Oklahoma City at Hope Community Services on Southside um, all through grad school. And that was, you know, I was in the the powerhouse and the, the day program and the um, clubhouse program. So every day was, you know, I spent playing skipbo and volleyball and stuff with people with, you know, severe and chronic, uh, you know, mental health issues and, and, and just being in their world and helping them learn how to navigate everything from complex financial situations to like everyday interpersonal situations. And it was, it was super rewarding and really interesting. And it was great to do that during the day and then go to class at night and like have a directly applicable, like a reference point of like, Oh, well, I know this guy, like I see him every day and this makes a lot of sense. So that was, uh, that was kind of the, a great foundation. I did private practice for a while. Um, along the way, I, I took a bit of a hiatus and went to work for the state of Texas at a, what was then called the a state school. Now they're called state supported living centers. Um, but these are large state run institutions for people with developmental disabilities and mental health issues in many ways, a throwback to the way that things were in the sixties and seventies, they've gotten better, but like it was, that was an eye opening experience. I thought I had seen it all and that was not the case. Um, and so it was kind of a glimpse back in time. And so I worked there for about eight months and that was long enough. It was, it was good work. We had good people, but it was not where I wanted to retire from by any means. And, um, and so my wife uh, at the time and I moved back to Oklahoma city and, and, uh, did private practice. I did home-based counseling, um, for a while. And then eventually got my job at, uh, at OU at the health sciences center overseeing their HIV and AIDS programs, which includes a mental health component, a social work component. Uh, and so that was kind of my entree into, into that role. So tell me more about that. Sure. Um, so I was there for 10 years. I just left a couple of months ago. I need to update my bio clearly. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, so the, the HIV program at OU is one of two large HIV treatment programs in the state of Oklahoma. The other one's in, in Tulsa at the OSU College of Medicine. Uh, and these are funded, federally funded through the, the Ryan White program is the name of the federal funding. And it provides for comprehensive care for people living with HIV and AIDS and that, that how comprehensive it is kind of is defined by each program, right. And how much money they receive from the government. Uh, we were able to provide, you know, comprehensive medical care. Um, so clinic visits, labs, medications, um, all of that pharmaceutical support, um, uh, medical case management with like social workers, um, mental health treatment, therapists, psychiatry, we had a dietitian. Um, we did some education, psychoeducation stuff. We had a a, a peer support group. Uh, a guy that was led by um, a friend of mine now, who's um, he's been living with HIV since 1986. So he's been around the block a time or two, and it was a really it was a really great program, uh, really rewarding work, and I I thoroughly enjoyed everything about being there. So what are you doing now? What are you? Well, so uh, a few years ago, um, I started dabbling, I guess, in politics. Um, in 2016, you know, our state was facing 
a $1.3 billion budget shortfall, which was not good. And I had never, you know, I voted usually, not all the time. I kind of, you know, listened to NPR on my drive to work most days. And I had heard one day that our state had had its second revenue failure. And I was like, I don't know when the first one was, but I'm going to guess we shouldn't have any, right? Like, it just seems like a, um, something that shouldn't happen with the state. And so I started kind of just listening more. And, and our HIV program was funded by federal dollars, so it, it didn't affect us directly. But it started affecting the university and affecting my colleagues at DHS and the health department and ODMH and all these cuts. And I had, you know, friends lose their jobs because the state legislature couldn't get it together. And, and I mean, there were some macroeconomic issues going on, but it, it all like was enhanced by, in my opinion, poor economic policy decisions that have been made over the last decade. And I found out that our state had been like cutting the budget. And I get the idea of trying to right size government or however you want to phrase it. But the fact is that every state agency in our, in our state was cut by an average of 40% over a 10 year period. And that's like, if my income was cut by 40% over the last decade, I could not survive. Right. I'm sure you couldn't either. Most people couldn't. And our state was not surviving. I mean, we were just hemorrhaging teachers and employees and, you know, road repair and everything. And I was like, man, this is terrible. And it occurred to me, I was like, man, they should really do something. They should fix this. And then it occurred to me that maybe they didn't know what to do. You know, our state legislature is 101 men and women who in many cases leave their other jobs or try to do them both together to come and represent the people from their district. And that's a commendable um, gesture and exercise. But it also, it doesn't mean that everybody is experts in everything, right? Like if you're a, you know, if you're a a pastor from a small town or you're an oil guy from West, you know, Western Oklahoma, or you're a a banker from Atoka, that's great. And you bring a valuable experience, but we can't expect everyone to be, you know, PhDs in economics and know like oil and gas policy and know mental health policy. You can't just can't know everything. I was like, oh, well, that's that's where we come in, right? We as the people should should go up there. And so I kind of I just made a Facebook event and invited my friends to go to the Capitol with me and do our part to make sure that they had our information and and could hear from their voters, their constituents, what we wanted and what we believed was the best options available. It's up to them to vote on it, but we should at least tell them like, hey, this is what we support. And from that, it grew. And so we kind of fast forward over the last three years that went from a Facebook event where you know, I thought I'd have six or eight people show up and we had a hundred people and then we had 200, then we had 500 and I was like, well, something's going on to three years later. We've been, you know, we've kept going um, and trying to be involved and do more stuff. And earlier this year, we had started talking about the issue of uh, redistricting. So this is, I might be kind of getting ahead of my skis here, but every 10 years we do the census. Everyone knows, right? We count everybody in the country. The goal of the census is to count every man, woman, and child that are within the United States, including within Oklahoma. And then the year following that, we get the data back from the federal government and we use that information to redraw all of our state legislative districts and our congressional districts. And we have to redraw them because 
each district has to have the same number of people, right? So every state house district has to have an equal population, every state senate district an equal population and so forth um, to ensure that it's, you know, one person, one vote, right? That everyone's vote counts the same. So if you live in, you live in Woodward, you live in Oklahoma City or Tulsa, you have the same proportional vote as anybody else. And population changes over time, right? People are born, people die, people move. Um, what we've seen over the last couple of decades in Oklahoma in particular is that people are moving to the cities and are moving away from rural areas. And so that affects how districts are drawn. Well, the way it's done now, as I recently learned is, well, over the last few years is that um, redistricting is done by the legislators, like the, the very people that are in office. So it's like, we just, every 10 years, like, okay, well, you guys just redraw your own districts. And even at the face value, when I learned it, I was like, what? You're Surely that's not the way it is, but it's exactly the way it is. And so this is, you know, people hear about gerrymandering. This is what happens. People draw districts so that they stay safe, so their buddies stay safe, and so they can predict how districts are going to vote, and it makes it easier for them to get reelected. It also means that they are effectively less accountable to us. This seems egregious to me um, and many others. The League of Women Voters has been working on this for years, for probably two decades. And so this year, uh, in, in 2019, Let's Fix This decided to come up with a few issues that we cared about. And we would kind of have like, you know, we called it our legislative agenda. We didn't really work on it or we weren't trying to advocate for it, but we just wanted to shine some light on it. You know, issues like redistricting and some other election reform, democracy reform issues, things that speak to the, I don't know, like the the underpinnings of our democracy, like the how things work, right? We spend a lot of time talking about the policies that are the results of that, um, but we want to talk about those kind of structural issues, and uh, this is one of them. As it turns out, um, early in 2019, maybe in June 2019, the U.S. Supreme Court was hearing a case about redistricting from another state and that it escalated to them. And there was a lot of hope that they would rule and say that partisan gerrymandering, that is redrawing district lines to benefit one party or the other. Uh, and both parties have done it, just to be clear. This is this is not a partisan issue. Um, but the, that partisan gerrymandering is illegal is what we were hoping. And the uh, Supreme Court decided to just not rule on it. They just said, well, it's not jurisdictable meaning we're not going to have an opinion. It's up to you guys. Well, okay. If it's up to us, someone's got to do it. And and some states had done some work on this last year and passed it. Um, like Missouri was one. Uh, Utah was one. Michigan, Colorado. Um, and there's some states that had, for a couple of decades, have had independent commissions. Um, and that seems like the way to go, right? If you're worried about conflict of interest, you just take it out of their hands. And give it back to us, back to the voters, and let us draw the lines for where we live, rather than waiting for politicians to draw it about where they live. So anyway, so now um, it it got to the point where I was able to leave the university to go run this campaign. So we filed a, a ballot initiative. Um, it's going to be state question eight hundred four, and uh, we are currently awaiting a hearing before the Supreme Court um, here in Oklahoma to make sure we can proceed. But um, after ten years at, of doing healthcare and, and mental health, it seemed like the right time to go to the next level to try to affect change on a, on a statewide basis. Exactly. That was a 
terribly long answer. Oh my gosh. Fascinating. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, I just have a whole stack of questions here. So one of the things that you talked about in the, in the criminal justice reform series that you did on Let's Pod This is you talked about when you were 22, you realized that you looked around this community mental health center that you were working at, and you realized there's lots of um, people who are white, mm-hmm. and, and and this was explained to you, and it was a very eye-opening experience. Can you share that story? Yeah, so, um, yeah, it was made uh, very clear that you know a lot of folks would come to our treatment program, um, and they many of them had friends or relatives who had the same situation, right? Maybe had some underlying mental illness, um, had gotten involved with the criminal justice system at some point, but some folks went to jail and some folks went to treatment. And it was pretty clear that that was not an equitable division of who gets what. Um, certainly people that are poor, uh, people of color, um, ended up going to jail far more often. And, and even despite that, just looking around, the the folks that were coming to our program every day were good people, right? Like some of them had made poor choices under the influence of um, untreated mental illness or substance abuse or something, sure. But the fact that they didn't have the resources available to them to get the treatment they actually needed meant that almost everyone had cycled through the criminal justice system at some point. Um, and I look around at like friends I have that had made the same kinds of poor choices, but they didn't end up there, right? Like, uh, and and they got the treatment they needed. And I was like, well, this immediately seems not not fair. Not the way it's supposed to be. Not the way that I think, honestly, not the way I think that most people think it works. And that was the thing that was eye-opening to me was, well, I thought it was this way. And it's clear to me that it's not that way. How did that happen and how can we fix it? Yeah. One of the the great things that Terry White, the commissioner of the Department of Mental Health, she always talks about is we have, and, and they don't get credit for this a lot of the times, but they don't, uh, they have amazing outcomes for the people who receive treatment, who the Department of Mental Health provides treatment. Mm-hmm. They have great outcomes. The problem is that there's, you know, um, I think it's about a million Oklahomans are in need of mental health or substance use treatment, but only one in three actually receive that treatment. Mm-hmm. And so lots of people fall through the cracks and into jails and prisons. And one of the one of the awesome um, things that I learned from your podcast, um, it was, I think it I think it was Ryan Gensler said this, um, but he said something like um, more than 1% of uh, Oklahoma's population is either in jail or in prison. Mm. Well, it was amazing. That's crazy. And and I in that podcast, you you seemed pretty amazed by that fact as well. You know, when you talk about let's fix this, and and you you're always good about on the podcast. You actually do provide solutions, and I, I appreciate that because a lot of people are just shaking their fists in the air and nothing happens. <laughs> right. You know, it's not let's get angry. It's let's get let's fix this. And I believe that one of your guests, you guys asked him, you know, if you were, I think your exact words were, uh, if you were a benevolent dictator, <laughs> <laughs> you could and you could change uh, the criminal justice system in uh, amazing ways. What would you do? And the gentleman said, and I, and, and you gave him, I think he had three options and he, he settled on one and it was powerful. I remember this cause I, I listened to this episode again on my way over cause I loved it so much. And he said, I would work to help young people who have been 
justice involved who have been and who are in jails and prisons because um, we're brutal to that mm-hmm. that age group. We're brutal to everybody who is incarcerated, honestly. But you know, if we can work to prevent people from being incarcerated to divert people out of incarceration, especially young people, that would be an amazing start. That being said, what is your let's fix this for the criminal justice system? If you are Andy Moore, benevolent dictator of the Oklahoma criminal justice system. (laughs) Uh, Man, that's a big question. I think you need a uniform for that too. Something, yeah, (laughs) some kind of a badge. Um, Well, I think, you know, that what you were just saying reminds me what my my senior thesis when I was an undergrad was about juvenile correctional workers. I had, I had three friends that were working at the juvenile justice center or detention center, whatever it's called. And they would talk all the time about how burnt out everybody was. And so we did a research project, just, it was kind of a survey of, of burnout and, and then looking at the implications of burnout on people who work in that environment. And, and you know, what we found was exactly what you'd expect, right? Like they're all incredibly burned out they don't enjoy their jobs because it's really hard work. It's overcrowded. They're, they're understaffed and that extends up the vertical into the department of corrections. Right? So not just juvenile programs, but adult programs as well. We've got prisons that are operating it beyond hundred percent capacity. And we have staffing ratios that are below hundred percent capacity. So if you've got 130% of the prisoners you're supposed to have, and you've got 60% of the employees you're supposed to have, bad stuff's going to happen, right? Like it's, it's bad for everybody involved. And, and I think how we got there, right? If you're going to fix it, you got to figure out what the root cause is and a couple of things. And and this is from my perspective, to be clear. Um, but I think the things that got us there was it's easier to just say, Oh, they messed up, lock them up because you don't have to think about it. It's a, it's a quick reaction to that. And it, and the idea that people could be helped, is a difficult thought, I think, particularly for victims, right? Like, I mean, for all of us, the idea that someone committed a heinous crime, but they might get better. We like the idea, we as humans like the idea of some kind of swift justice. And I think that we have to really grapple with that on like a human level, that if it's you or your, you know, your brother, your sister, your child who messed up, what does justice look like? And that it justice looks different for different people and we have to really come to terms with the, what's the best way to get there and that, to recognize that you can't just do something and it's not going to, an apology doesn't make it go away. Like that someone's still hurt. There's still some, it's still a messy process. However, I think that we have outsized consequences for certain crimes, right? And, and the, uh, there's another state question that was just filed, uh, state question 805, that deals with sentence enhancements, right? This speaks to that where it's like, well, hey, we we are really like throwing the book at people because they made a tiny infraction like 10 years ago and we're still holding them accountable and making it worse now because they had another tiny infraction and that's not okay. Um, the changes we've had with state question 780 um, and, and you know some of these crimes that 30 years ago we really like trumped up charges on on people for you know simple possession charges and we're kind of recognizing like well okay just because you had some dope in your pocket doesn't make you a bad person and that's a that's a shift right like my grandmother probably still say they're a bad person because good people don't carry dope in their pocket but i think most of us know friends that carried dope in their pocket at some point and you know i had a friend in college 
this is where that other, earlier thing came from. It's a Native American guy, he's my neighbor, and um, he got uh, he was went to Taco Bell with his buddies, roommate, and they got pulled up by the cops. He had marijuana in his pocket. The other guy had marijuana in his pocket. The driver was white. My friend Martin was Native American. Driver got off. Martin went to jail. Had to drop out of school, lost his scholarship, and I had to help his mom, who I didn't know hardly at all, pack up his stuff in his room while she just wept, you know, for an hour. And what are you going to say? And the, like, even then, I was like, well, that's not fair. And it's because they couldn't afford an attorney. And the other, the driver, the white kid who was there to sell drugs, he had a way worse thing going on. He got off and, and my buddy got in trouble. So I think we've got to, like, really just take a, a beat to look at what's happening and see what people really need. And so I think we got to look at how they get there in the first place. And then we got to look at what we do on the back end, right? Do we just lock them up and throw away the key and say they're a bad person and they don't deserve the rest of their freedom? No, that's not the right thing to do. For many folks, they are only there because they didn't receive the treatment they really need. And, you know, it's it's like $28,000 a year of state money, right, of taxpayer dollars to lock somebody up. And it's like $2,000 to get them counseling. Mm-hmm. Well, hey... I got an idea. <laughs> like, for every person we lock up, we could treat 10 people and keep them out of prison and keep them working, keep them with their family, keep them contributing to society, and it benefits everybody. There's some really simple stuff, but it takes us, it takes our state legislators making the bold, courageous choice to divert that funding up front. And it's tough because right now, well, prisons are underfunded. Okay, well, we got to get less folks in prison and we have to make sure they get into treatment. So you can't just let them go and forget about it. Like there's a a way to do it. It's not easy, but it's definitely doable. I think that's, if I was the benevolent dictator, that's what I would do. Nice. Would you have a mustache? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) I've I've been growing it out much to my wife's chagrin, but I was just like, well, let's just see, see what happens. (laughs) Um, I think when you talk about, you know, let's fix this, like to let's fix this, you have to educate the population. You have to, you know, mm-hmm. Oklahomans, they just don't know this stuff. Most people don't know this no, stuff. No, because we live our lives and it doesn't yeah, affect us. Yeah, exactly. I think if you don't understand, you can't care, right? right. Like it, you really have to get it. And, and the reverse is true. If you do understand, you're more inclined to care about it, right? And I think a good example is, you know, most Oklahomans know that our prisons are overcrowded and they're just generally not good places, right? There's been a number of legislators that have taken the time to go tour, like the penitentiary in McAllister. And when I've talked to any of them afterward, they are visibly changed, right? Like you can see it in the tone of how they write about it. And if you've talked to them in person, they've seen things that they can't unsee. And it fundamentally changes the way you view it. And it's easy for any of us to turn a blind eye because ignorance is bliss, right? And we can't, you can't possibly care about everything. That's okay. But you gotta, you gotta care about something and you gotta pick that. And whatever it is that you feel like I've got an ounce to give, God, we need it. You know, we need you to give it. Um, I just love that you're, that you guys did that series. You've kind of teased it. Um, you did a 2019 wrap up episode, which I loved. Also go listen to that right now. It's the latest episode. I believe it's out. 
And in that episode, you kind of tease that in, in January, which we're in January now, you're going to do a healthcare series. Yeah. So what, what's your plans? Kind of give us a uh, preview of what you're going to do with the healthcare series. Yeah. So we've been, we've been planning this for a while. We just haven't had time to, uh, to fully get it all together and get it recorded. But I think that towards the end of the month, uh, we're going to get everything recorded and we'll probably have them come out end of January, early part of February. Um, and we are going to, it'll be a three or four part series, um, looking at kind of the various aspects of healthcare in Oklahoma. So, uh, we'll do like we do with criminal justice, an overview, um, of all the coverage options that are out there, right? Let's just start there. Private care, you know, private insurance, you know, Medicaid, VA, Indian health services, all Medicare, all these different things that we hear the words, but let's really take time to divide up what's what. And so we can understand then specifically, we want to take a deeper dive into Medicaid because that's been such a contentious issue. We've got a a state question that is going to be on the ballot and sometime in 2020 that would expand Medicaid. And we'll do probably in a whole episode about that campaign as well. We expect in the next month or so that the governor will release his plan for Medicaid expansion. There's been, you know, there was expansion bills last year. There's a working group going on. um, And so there's kind of several things out there. Um, so we want to talk about how Medicaid works today, what works, what doesn't, how it operates in Oklahoma, because it's different state to state. And then specifically, okay, well, here's how it is now. What would it look like under these different possible future scenarios? Um, and then we'll probably do a deeper dive into Medicare as well. So this, you know, it's a, that's the um, different program than Medicaid. And I think they get confused. A lot, we all do. Those terms are very similar. Um, but to differentiate those, and I think, you know, as my, my mom just got on, she reached the age to get on Medicare this year and having dealt with it with a number of clients and now with my own mother, um, and soon my father of helping them navigate that process. It's not as easy as it should be. I think, mm-hmm. um, like, you know, the fact that we have a, a program that in, includes something that's known as the donut hole or the coverage gap, it's like, well, why do we design a program with a gap in it? Like, who thought that up, right? You get care and then you don't for a while and then you do again. Well, that's dumb. So helping everyone understand that because we can still change it. And, if, you know, with a number of presidential candidates discussing Medicare for all or all who want it or, you know, people whose name and in why, I don't, you know, there's a bunch of ideas out there. Let's uh, it'd be help all of us be more informed voters to really understand how these things work. We have a lobbyist, Jake Glantz, and uh, Jake is going to be working at the Capitol this year, uh, most definitely on hopefully hopefully getting Medicaid expanded along with many other advocates. And Jake, actually, he, he put together this, this wonderful thing on State Question 802. So I'm just going to kind of rattle off some of these amazing stats. So in Oklahoma, 97,000 people with a mental health diagnosis do not have health coverage. I mean, did you know that? No, but that's terrifying. Like, I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking and concerning, but also like a little bit scary, right? Like people who genuinely need care because they don't have insurance, they go to the ER. If they go somewhere, they go to the ER and that's not the, or they go to jail. Those are the two places. Mm -hmm. That's neither one of those are the right place to get the treatment they need. Exactly. Um, Oklahoma has a second highest rate of uninsured adults in the U S Oklahoma ranks 34th in access to mental health care. Over 90% of the states that rank higher have expanded Medicaid. Hmm, surprising. Um, 
States that have expanded Medicaid cut the number of mental health hospital stays nearly in half compared to states that have not expanded Medicaid. That is amazing. I think the as we're talking about mental health and criminal justice reform and all of these things that let's fix this and let's pod this is is looking into um, what what is your biggest suggestion for your audience to make them feel like they can go out and make a difference? You know what? So give them their marching orders. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing is just knowing that you can, right? And that was something that I didn't I didn't realize. Like when when I started, let's fix this. I first of all spent two weeks just walking around kind of with a talking point to all my friends of like, you know, we should just take the day off work and go to the Capitol. And everyone's like, we should. And finally, one of my wiser colleagues said, when are you going to do that? I was like, oh, I don't know. She's like, well, when you schedule it, let me know. I'll go with you. And then I was like, oh, well, someone's got to be first, right? And I was like, okay, well, there's one person to go with me. I bet I can get three or four others. Um, and I guess if you build it, they will come, right? Like we had a hundred people that came just from word of mouth. It wasn't, it wasn't a rally. I'm not trying to do anything. I genuinely want people to build a relationship with their elected officials, city level, state level. If you've got the ear of your federal representatives, great. That's harder. But like the state capital is right here, especially if you're in Oklahoma city, right? In Tulsa, you're only 90 minutes away. Like you can drive down. Let me know. Like we'll go have lunch or something, but I'll come to the capital with you and help show you where the bathrooms are and where the snack bar is. And, how to you know hang out up in the gallery if you need to cool off or relax, um, but it's not scary. Um, the first time it it can be, but you realize that we own the building. Like you can go anytime. I've been up there. I went up there at ten o'clock at night to take cookies to the press corps one night because they were there reporting on session late, and I was like, I was like, can I wear shorts and a t shirt? Like I guess it's it is our house. We be respectful, right? Think of it as your mama's house, but like you can still go and, and you can be involved and they work for us and they should listen to us, but they can only listen if you do your part. If you just complain on Facebook, they don't read that. They don't know. If you just complain to your neighbors, your representatives don't know. You have to talk to them. They're not, you know, special. They're not powerful. They're just like you and I. They only get to be there for a maximum of 12 years and they got to go home. So they're not even there that long, right? So like you can, you can do this and you know, with let's fix this. We want to make it easy. Um, we want to try to dispel any anxieties or rumors that you may have heard about the building and literally help you walk in the door and, and meet people. And it helps that I'm an extrovert and I don't mind meeting strangers. Um, but I still get nervous, right? Like there's a bunch of them I don't know cause they're newly elected and I still get nervous about it, but it's not going to kill me. Like I'm not going to die. So I can go do it. And I think you can too. And so what I said a minute ago is whatever your issue is, if it's mental health, great. If you're listening to this podcast, it's probably mental health, but it may be other things as well. Education, Medicaid expansion in general, roads and bridge, you know, there's a feral hogs, whatever it is that matters to you, speak up. Like, and if you don't know how to say what it is you feel, let's practice. Let's write it down. You know, it's framing that argument is, is a really easy exercise. Um, and once you get it down and it's like two sentences, you are ready to go. Um, it's not up to us necessarily to fix it. It is up to us to hold people accountable and make sure they fix it too. Right. And that means we have to be involved so we can do it. Hoorah. 
Um, so one of my other favorite episodes that you guys did was uh, you did a watch party uh, for West Wing at the Tower Theater mm-hmm. here in Oklahoma City. And then you had this amazing panel of um, really remarkable people um, who some have served on the, on the stick campaign. And they all kind of commented and kind of gave some behind the scenes looks at what it's actually like to work on a campaign. And then you said one of your favorite lines is, decisions are made by the people who show up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is really powerful mm-hmm. because, and that's really, that's what you're saying. Show up. Yeah. So showing up is a big deal. And even if you can't come physically in person, there's other ways you can still show up. Right. Um, although, you know, there's no replacement for displacement. Right. So like showing up in person is a, is a big deal. Um, so during the legislative session, which is February through May, we will host, like as we do every year, a number of capital days at the Capitol. Mental Health Association, there's usually like a mental health day, right? That's a great day to go. We do a day that's for anybody. Whatever your issue is, again, mental health, feral hogs, whatever, come on down. Um, because you may not be able to go on the day you want to go. So we try to do a few of those, and we'll announce those here in the next couple of weeks. Um, put on your schedule, come down for a couple hours in the morning, um, and then, you know, you Take the day off, go back to work, whatever you want to do. But it gives you a chance to come to the building, especially if you've never been before. Um, we would love to have you come. And if you want to meet your representative or your senator, um, we can help you kind of explain how to make that happen, set up an appointment, just go by their office, even if they're not there, sit in the gallery and watch them if they're on the House floor or in a committee meeting. All this stuff is public and open, so you can you can go and do it. You don't even have to talk to anybody the first time. That's cool. I'll give you a pass. Um, but that's a great way to show up. And we have a lot of people who come once that are like, oh, well, this is real easy. I'll come again. Okay, great. Come on back. So we try to do that during session. Um, we'll do other events outside the Capitol where we invite legislators to come hang out with us. Because if we're willing to go to the Capitol, we believe they should be willing to come back and hang out with us. So we'll do things like you know a happy hour um, at a, a restaurant or a coffee shop um, where you can just kind of sit and meet and mingle with some legislators with other people, right. That have a similar passion or concern. Um, you get to meet some of your neighbors in the state and those are really fun. Um, and then doing things online, like, you know, while I think we all understand that we need to get off Facebook and do stuff in real life, sometimes that's an easy entrance point and there's a good way to do it and a bad way to do it. Right. And, um, so if you want to send emails, make phone calls, I think those are really effective and we are happy to help kind of explain how to do that. Over the next few months, in addition to doing this, um, we're gonna be kind of slowly dripping out um, basically like a civics curriculum, like an online curriculum for how to how to do civic engagement uh, in a way that is accessible you know, to as many people as we can. So trying to break things down and make it simple to understand and simple to do and maybe a little fun heaven forbid. Right. And, uh, um, and so kind of engaging with those is a good, a good starting place as well. Nice. Okay. As we're wrapping up here, tell us all the Facebook candles and Insta and websites yeah. and email, whatever you want to tell people about. Yeah. So we, you can find us online at let's fix this. Okay.org. And then Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are let's fix this. Okay. Um, real easy. So let's fix this. Okay all those things. Um, on the website, we got a blog. Um, all of our podcast episode have a blog post that corresponds with some show notes and you can listen to it right there. Um, and then you can 
find uh, links to the podcast as well. If you want to subscribe to Let's Pod This, um, we sign up for our newsletter. I don't even send one out every month. We all get enough emails as it is. I always send it if it's important. Um, you can make a donation. That's always appreciated as well. Um, like the Mental Health Association, we are a nonprofit. Uh, we're a 501c3. We're nonpartisan. We really just want a better Oklahoma and we need your help. This is, you know, let's fix this is let us fix this. It's about us. It's about all of us getting involved and, and kind of chipping in. That's beautiful. So uh, I do want to add, and, and if you want to learn more about uh, the mental health side of advocacy, you can visit mhaok.org forward slash advocate. And we have lots of resources there for you. Um, okay. So at the end of every episode, Andy, we, we close out the show. We have the guest sh- uh, share our sort of battle cry of go do good things, which um, our CEO tells our staff at the end of every meeting has just sort of a, a reminder that we all have the power to do that. And so if you'll just share a few parting words and then say, go do good things, we'll be done. Sure. So what you said a minute ago is exactly right. Decisions are made by those who show up. And I think with that note, go do good things. <laughs>